How to Change the World. In his Laws of Repentance, Moses Maimonides makes one of the most empowering statements in religious literature. Having explained that we and the world are judged by the majority of our deeds, he continues, Therefore we should see ourselves throughout the year as if our deeds and those of the world are evenly poised between good and bad, so that our next act may change both the balance of our lives and that of the world. We can make a difference, and it's potentially immense. That should be our mindset always. Well, few statements are more at odds with the way the world seems to us most of the time. Each of us knows that there's only one of us, and that there are seven billion others in the world today. What conceivable difference can we make? We're no more than a wave in the ocean, a grain of sand on the seashore, dust on the surface of infinity. Is it conceivable that, with one act, we could change the trajectory of our life, let alone that of humanity as a whole? Our Parsha tells us that yes, it is. As the story of Jacob's children unfolds, there's a rapid rise of tension between his children that threatens to spill over into violence. Joseph, 11th of the Twelve, is Jacob's favourite son. He was, says the Torah, the child of Jacob's old age. More significantly, he was the first child of Jacob's beloved wife, Rachel. Jacob loved him more than his other sons, and they knew it and resented it. They were jealous of their father's love. They were provoked by Joseph's dreams of greatness. The sight of the many-coloured robe Jacob had given him as a token of his love provoked them to anger. Then came the moment of opportunity. The brothers were away, far from home, tending the flocks, when Joseph appeared in the distance, sent by Jacob to see how they were doing. Their envy and anger reached boiling point and they resolved to take violent revenge. Here comes that dreamer, they said to one another. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a wild animal devoured him. Then we'll see what becomes of his dreams. Only one of the brothers disagreed, Reuben. He knew that what they were proposing was very wrong and he protested. At this point, the terror does something extraordinary. It makes a statement that cannot be literally true. And we, reading the story, know this. The text says, And Reuben heard and saved him, Joseph, from them. We know this can't be true because of what happens next. Reuben, realizing that he's only one against many, devises a stratagem. He says, let's not kill him. Let's throw him alive in one of the cisterns and let him die. That way, we won't be directly guilty of murder. His intention was to come back to the cistern later when the others were elsewhere and rescue Joseph. What the Torah says, and Reuben heard and saved him from them, is using the principle that God accounts a good intention as a deed. Reuben wanted to save Joseph and intended to do so, but in fact he failed. The moment passed, and by the time he acted, it was already too late. Returning to the cistern, he found Joseph already gone, sold as a slave. 
On this, a Midrash says, If only Reuben had known that the Holy One, blessed be he, would write about him, and Reuben heard and saved him from them, he would have lifted Joseph bodily onto his shoulders and taken him back to his father. What does this mean? Consider what would have happened had Reuben actually acted at that moment. Joseph wouldn't have been sold as a slave. He wouldn't have been taken to Egypt. He wouldn't have worked in Potiphar's house. He would not have attracted Potiphar's wife. He would not then have been thrown into prison on a false charge. He wouldn't have interpreted the dreams of the butler and baker, nor would he have done the same two years later for Pharaoh. He would not have been made viceroy of Egypt. He wouldn't have brought his family to stay there. To be sure, God had already told Aram many years earlier, know for a certainty that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a land not their own, and there they will be enslaved and mistreated. The Israelites would have become slaves, come what may. But at least they wouldn't have had this happen as a result of their own family dysfunctions. An entire chapter of Jewish guilt and shame might have been avoided. If only Reuben had known what we know. If only he had been able to read the book. But we never can read the book that tells of the long-term consequences of our acts. We never know how much we affect the lives of others. There's a story I find very moving about how in 1966, an 11-year-old African-American boy moved with his family to a hitherto white neighborhood in Washington. Sitting with his brothers and sisters on the front step of the house, he waited to see how they would be greeted. They weren't. Passers-by turned to look at them, but no one gave them a smile or even a glance of recognition. All the fearful stories he'd heard about how whites treated blacks seemed to be coming true. Years later, writing about those first days in their new home, he said, I knew we weren't welcome here. I knew we would not be liked here. I knew we would have no friends here. I knew we shouldn't have moved here. As he was thinking those thoughts, a woman passed by on the other side of the road. She turned to the children and with a broad smile said, Welcome! Disappearing into the house, she emerged minutes later with a tray laden with drinks and cream cheese and jelly sandwiches, which she brought over to the children, making them feel at home. That moment, the young man later wrote, changed his life. It gave him a sense of belonging where there was none before. It made him realize at a time when race relations in the United States were still fraught, that a black family could feel at home in a white area, and that there could be relationships that were colorblind. Over the years, he learned to admire much about the woman across the street, but it was that first spontaneous act of greeting that became for him a definitive memory. It broke down a wall of separation and turned strangers into friends. The young man, Stephen Carter, eventually became a law professor at Yale and wrote a book about what he learned that day. He called it Civility. The name of the woman, he tells us, was Sarah Kestenbaum, and she died all too young. He adds that it was no coincidence that she was a religious Jew. In the Jewish tradition, he notes, such civility is called chesed, the doing of acts of kindness.
which is in turn derived from the understanding that human beings are made in the image of God. Civility, he adds, itself may be seen as part of chesed. It does indeed require kindness towards our fellow citizens, including the ones who are strangers, and even when it's hard. To this day, he adds, I can close my eyes and feel on my tongue the smooth, slick sweetness of the cream cheese and jelly sandwiches that I gobbled on that Sunday afternoon when I discovered how a single act of genuine and unassuming civility can change a life forever. A single life, says the Mishnah, is like a universe. Change a life and you begin to change the universe. That is how we make a difference, one life at a time, one day at a time, one act at a time. We never know in advance what effect a single act may have. Sometimes we never know it at all. Sarah Kestenbaum, like Rubin, never did have the chance to read the book that told the story of the long-term consequences of that moment. But she acted. She didn't hesitate. Neither said Maimonides, should we. Our next act might tilt the balance of someone else's life as well as our own. We are not inconsequential. We can make a difference to our world. When we do so, we become God's partners in the work of redemption, bringing the world that is a little closer to the world that ought to be.